Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord is saying. Arise, lay out the lawsuit before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, mountains, the lawsuit of the Lord. Hear, eternal foundations of the earth. The Lord has a lawsuit against his people. With Israel he will argue. My people, what did I ever do to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam before you. My people, remember what Moab's king Balak had planned and how Balaam, Beor's son, answered him. Remember everything, from Shittim to Gilgal, that you might learn to recognize the righteous acts of the Lord. With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with entirely burned offerings, with year-old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you. To do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word. And we ask that as we reflect upon it this morning, your spirit would be with us to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Today, we move away from Isaiah to the prophet Micah. Some of you know that the structure for our Bible studies this year is that we will be covering six of the 12 minor prophets. So you can think of today's scripture as a sneak peek of the final prophet that we'll be covering in May. And to be honest, part of the reason that I wanted us to take a look at some of these minor prophets is that I don't know a whole lot about some of them. Of Micah, for example, I basically know the end of today's passage, the oft-quoted instruction to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Before this week, I hadn't really taken the time to dig into the broader context of this text. One of the questions I had as I came to this text was what if any, relationship this text has to Isaiah, particularly since the lectionary sets these texts side by side. Therefore, it was enlightening for me to open my commentary by Elizabeth Ockmeyer and find this description of Micah. She writes, The book of Micah represents at least two centuries of Israel's meditation on its God-given role in the world of nations. As is true also in the Isaiah tradition, Micah recalls the promise to the fathers that Israel will be a source of blessing for all the nations of the earth. 
but hindering that role is Israel's continual sin for which it must be judged by the Lord of all the earth. In other words, Micah, like Isaiah, is about how God has called the people of Israel to be an instrument of blessing for the entire world, but the people can't be a blessing to others until they learn how to walk faithfully first. So what is the specific scene in this story that we have before us today? It's a courtroom scene where God's people are called to account for their disloyalty to the covenant. As Christians, we're probably used to hearing judicial metaphors for salvation. Most often, those metaphors center on the crucifixion and our personal salvation, but the scene that Micah has in mind is so much broader in scope than individual consequences. In this trial, God summons the mountains and hills, the eternal foundations of the earth, to serve as the jury. By breaking faith with the covenant, the people of God have done injury to all that belongs to God. Their affront is to all creation. Then, with the jury present, God begins his opening argument. What did I ever do to you? asks God. Was it when I brought you out of Egypt that I did something wrong? When I freed you from slavery? When I sent Moses to give you the law? When I sent Aaron to lead the priests? When I appointed Miriam as a prophetess? Or was it when Balak summoned Balaam to curse you that I did you wrong? How, O Israel, did I offend you when I caused Balaam to bless you three times? Should I not have defended you? Should I not have proclaimed the destruction of Balak and the Moabites who wished harm upon you? Did I wrong you by removing the idolaters from among your number at Shittim? Or did I wrong you by bringing you through Gilgal into the land of Canaan? Tell me, Israel, which of these righteous acts offended you? How has my justice wearied you so that you have turned your back on our covenant? And then, with God having presented the evidence, the voice of the defense speaks up. And it's an interesting trick that the defense tries to pull. The defense acts as if they don't know how to be in covenant with God, as if it's God that has broken the agreement. They ask, how should I come before the Lord? Are my offerings not good enough? If I give you a year-old calf, will that satisfy you? Or do you need thousands of rams and rivers of oil? Is even that not good enough for the Lord? Would you take my firstborn child? Would that appease your bloody vengeance? Do you see what has happened? The evidence is clear. God has been faithful. God has upheld justice. When Israel was in bondage, the Lord set them free. When Israel was in danger from violence, God gave them blessings. And when the people gained freedom and safety, what did they do? Did they share their blessings with the nations? No, they used their power to put others in bondage. They used their armies to conquer their neighbors they stole the wealth of the widow and the orphan to enrich the temple and the king. 
And now that God has called them to account, do they even bother to refute the evidence? No. They try to obfuscate and distract. They try to act like the rules were unclear. But God's justice will not be cheated. God has no time for their misdirection, and so that the answer that is returned from the jury is clear. He has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you. To do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. And how often are we like the voice of the defense? How often do we make things harder than they have to be? In our small groups and our meetings, we often come to the question of why the church, the capital C Global Church, is struggling. And if you've been a part of one of those discussions, you know that the answer can be complicated, that there are many factors that play into both the narrative that is told about the decline of the church and the on-the-ground reality of decline. But you know, at the same time, it really isn't that complicated either. The question, no matter how you spin it, comes down to the fact that the Lord has told us what is good and what is required of us. But that answer is a hard pill to swallow, so instead we have an entire sector within the church that has made a living out of inventing answers. These are the voices who look at the decline of the church and say to God, what will it take to please you? Do we need a rock band in our sanctuaries? Or maybe if we spend a bit more on the lights and sound, what material extravagance will it take to please you and put people back in our pews? But the extravagance isn't what God cares about. That isn't what is good and required of us. The people of ancient Israel thought that they could pull the wool over God's eyes in the same way. They thought that if they made a big enough show out of their faith, then God and the people would overlook how hollow their faith to the covenant was. But God's justice will not be cheated. And so through Isaiah, the Lord proclaims, I hate your new moons and your festivals. They've become a burden that I'm tired of bearing. And through Hosea, I will end all her religious celebrations, her festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, and all her sacred seasons. And through Amos, I hate, I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. And through Malachi, I am about to denounce your offspring I will scatter feces on your faces, the feces of your festivals. So what is it that God has told us is good and required of us? First, do justice. An important point here that many scholars highlight is that often the word that is used in Scripture to speak of justice gets translated as righteousness. And this can cause us to think of our faithfulness to the covenant in an individualized way that isn't expressed by the scripture. To be righteous is to do justice. The two are inseparable. It's not enough for us to be honest in our own life. 
we must also name dishonesty in the public sphere. It's not enough for us to be charitable in our own life. We must also work to change greed in our institutions. It's not enough for us to be anti-racist in our own life. We must work to dismantle the structures of racism that plague our society. I could keep naming examples, but you get the point. Doing justice means hearing the cries of the marginalized. The second thing that is good and required of us, to embrace faithful love, or in some translations, to love mercy. Here we are called to godliness in a related but different way to the first. We are called to justice and called to love as well. And last week I talked about how God's justice is concerned about reconciliation, about making whole all of God's creation. That is what this instruction is about. It requires us to exercise grace when we would rather exercise retribution. It requires us to step outside our comfort zones and to extend vulnerability when we would rather close ourselves off in fear. To do justice and to embrace love are two sides of the same coin. Love without justice is mere sentimentality. Justice without love is violent cruelty. The two need one another, and it is walking in the tension that we walk in the narrow way of holiness. Finally, the third thing that we're told is good and required, to walk humbly with our God. And this is where we get back to those questions about worship. To walk humbly with our God means that we aren't primarily focused on what makes us feel good, but on what glorifies God's goodness. And so maybe that means changing the style of music so that people can more clearly hear the good news. Or maybe that means changing the mechanics of the liturgy or worship materials in order to make others feel more welcome. But the driving force is always the why of our worship. It is always about centering our lives on God. And this extends to every aspect of our devotional life. When we read scripture, are we looking for an encounter with God that moves us towards holiness? Or are we merely looking to justify something we already believe? When we pray, are we asking that God's will be done? Or are we asking for a genie to grant our wishes? Just as there is a balance between love and justice, there is a balance implied in walking humbly with God. We walk the line between honoring our traditions and being stuck in our ways. We walk the line between being open to the movement of the spirit and being blown about by the winds of the latest fad. Doing what is good and required of us is, as I said, a hard answer. Doing justice will mean questioning the ways of the world. Embracing love will mean that we risk being hurt. Walking humbly with God will mean always being at risk of realizing that we were wrong about something, about being suddenly pushed by the Spirit in a new direction. But doing what is good and required of us 
is also a radically simple answer. It means coming face to face with difficult situations and always knowing that God has already let us know what to do. The life that God has called us to isn't one focused on the numbers in our pews or the money in our bank accounts. It isn't one that's focused on our own strength and skill. The life to which we have been called is faithfulness. The language of Micah is the language in which the story of God's church will be told. People will ask and remember how often we blessed the poor in spirit, whether we comforted those who grieved, whether or not we fed the hungry and thirsty, whether we generated peace or conflict. Because whether or not people realize what they are asking in these questions, they inherently know that these acts of love and justice are what truly reflect God. Then, when we go the way of all flesh, and it comes time to stand before the throne of judgment, we will know the questions that are going to be on the quiz. Did you do justice? Did you embrace love? Did you walk humbly with God? Amen. Please pray with me. God of love and justice, guide us as we walk in your narrow way. Let us show others the mercy that you have shown us. Let us be a blessing to our neighbors and to the nations. Let us always have our eyes upon you so that we might be open to gentle correction on our journey. Amen.